All right. Good morning. Good afternoon or good evening, everybody. I am extremely excited to have with us today, uh, not only a good friend of our show, Riel, of course, but Mr. Ross Coltart. I think those within the UFO community at this point don't really need much of an explanation as to his background and what have you. Please correct me, sir, if I am incorrect, but you were a 60 Minutes Australia uh, investigative journalist in addition to a, a reporter for Channel 9, correct? That's right. And yeah. you were also the author of In Plain Sight, the book that has really shaken the uh, UFO paranormal community quite uh, avidly. I'm flattered and humbled by such a, a rap. But yeah, yeah. In Plain Sight's my book. <laughs> and I did make my own film, too, which was um, called The UFO Phenomenon. And it's up on YouTube at the moment. Uh, and very, to my great delight, very popular with folk. Well, first, let me just say that I am so thankful that you, uh, again, seeing, you know, uh, you having interviews out there that have gone in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views. First off, we're both very grateful that you've uh, taken, agreed to sit down with us. Now, first and foremost, I, I did want to start by asking, being a uh, an independent professional, you know, investigative journalist at this point in time, how do you sort of draw the line with respects to, you know, uh, taking seriously what your sources tell you, but in addition to that, not conflating or crossing that line in a Venn diagram sense of, you know, appearing like, oh, this guy's just a tinfoil conspiracy nut job, so to speak. And I say this in a, in a complimentary way, because I think you've really brought oh. a lot of great things to the community. That's very kind of you. Look, first and foremost, all I'm doing I think is applying the skill set of investigative journalism, conventional mainstream investigative journalism to a subject matter that for too long has been derided, stigmatized and treated completely unfairly with taboo. And, and that of course is the phenomenon UAPs. Let's get our definitions right. I, I'm, I'm increasingly worried that I used the term UAP in my book, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Because as somebody pointed out on Twitter the other day, I'm, I, it's more than aerial phenomena and it's more than just a, a solid object manifesting itself in air, orbit, outer space or under the water. Uh, I don't think that term UAP is enough to describe it. I, I, let's go with the phenomenon. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that in journalism, when I'm making a decision about whether or not there is a story that's worthy of investigation, uh, I look at available evidence, just like a, a forensic investigator for the police department or a lawyer making a brief. And my training is as a lawyer. I, I trained as a lawyer and worked briefly as a lawyer before I went into journalism. I think you call it an attorney over there in the US. Uh, and I've learned how to balance evidence and how to assess evidence against a different range of burdens of proof. You've got prima facie, you know, that looks interesting. Let's let's take this further. Then you've got balance of probabilities, which in law is known as the civil burden of proof. And then, of course, you've got the criminal burden of proof, which is beyond any reasonable doubt. And when I was starting to look at the subject of the phenomenon, I freely admit as a journo, I thought this was all a bit of a laugh. Uh, <laughs> I, like most journalists in mainstream media, I have been acculturated by grisly, hard-bitten editors that for the phenomenon, flying sources, UAPs, UFOs, whatever you call it, is BS and not worthy of investigation. And I kind of glibly 
accepted that as a young journo because in journalism there are peer group pressures as much as there are in any organization and if a newspaper editor says to you as one did to me once roscoe we don't do flying saucer stories you know they're rubbish don't go there these people these people are crazy um i kind of accepted that but then throughout my journalistic career there have been incidents that have made me realize there's a certain wisdom of the crowd that there's a, a, a popular view out there in the general mainstream public that goes beyond what we in the media properly understand. And I started just doing basic reading. I, I picked up books like Richard Dolan's superb two-volume National Security State. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Timothy Good, the British author, who sadly I hear is not very well but I think his early works, um, Above Top Secret um, and others, are brilliant. I read Leslie Kane's book, and I started corresponding with Leslie Kane, and um, she was wonderful and helpful. And I was a keen admirer of the early work that was done by the New York Times and uh, people like Tom Rogan in the Washington Examiner. And I started following sites like The Drive, The Debrief, Sites that I guess as a journalist, I would regard as credible. And I mean, no disrespect to UFO Twitter, but like a lot of people, I've subscribed to, um, you know, UFO websites and Twitter sites. And frankly, I've had good cause to question at times the, the provenance of information. Because if I can make a gentle criticism and a kind criticism of people in UFO Twitter, and I, I hate to sort of lump people into one category. I think there's a tendency among people who've had sightings to assume that because you've got an image of a blurry object in the sky, that's evidence. And that somebody like me will immediately go off and publish it and broadcast it and take it seriously and engage with it. But for me, as a journalist, I've always taken the view that, for example, you need corroboration. So with a witness sighting, I'll give you a good example. There's a, there's a case I'm looking at at the moment involving an airbase just north of Sydney called Williamtown. And it's a major fighter base. And a lot of my sources, fighter pilots, um, uh, long range reconnaissance aircraft pilots have told me that there's been anomalous sightings objects seen in and around that base for many, many, many years. And uh, I've spoken to pilots, I've spoken on, off the, on, the rec on the record and off the record basis and on background basis to pilots. And there's a consistency in their accounts that I found very persuasive. I started going through the historical archival records of the Royal Australian Air Force, which did at one stage, they deny they do it now, which is a blatant misrepresentation of the facts, but they did very regularly uh, monitor UFO, UAP sightings and log them in their files. And those files show a consistent record of sightings at military bases across Australia going through from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And then around about the time that Project Blue Book put a kibosh on study of the phenomena and essentially stigmatized and made taboo the phenomena, our Air Force, and indeed ostensibly your Air Force in America, uh, the Canadian Air Force, the British Air Force, we supposedly got, got out of the game. We mm. supposedly stopped investigating the phenomenon. And as a journalist, what really shocked me was when I 
just out of a whim, I guess, started asking people at conferences, national security conferences. I, I've got contacts that I've met in researching terror stories, covering wars, war zones. I've traveled in Iraq and Afghanistan and all sorts of unpleasant places around the world. And you build up relationships with military officials and people in intelligence communities, both in the United States and in Australia and in Britain. And what really struck me was the counter narrative that I was hearing that whilst publicly there was this taboo, this stigma that was attached to the phenomenon, privately people at a very senior level in our military and in our intelligence services, both in America, Canada, the USA, France, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, people were telling me, yeah, this is real, Ross. Um, and and the, the thing that puzzled me was why, and this is what I've been wrestling with for many years. It was one of the things that scared me off the subject. Um, I've known for 20 or 30 years that, that there are very senior people. I once interviewed a guy who was very close to being the head of the Australian Air Force. Uh, and he admitted to me that he had seen objects flying right next to his fighter aircraft. And I said, did you report them? And he went, oh, no, 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 no way. You don't do that. And I said, why? And he said, well, you'd get ridiculed. But I said, surely you've got, by definition, an unknown object penetrating Australian airspace, right. breaching our territory, showing performance parameters that are far beyond any known aircraft. Surely that's a national security issue. And he laughed and he, he agreed with me. And we've, we've kept in touch. He's now quite old and in retirement, but he's been encouraging me uh, and introducing me to people, basically saying, look, I really love what you're doing. Keep on going. And, and there are a lot of people like that behind the scenes saying to me, great, Ross, this is really good. It's good that you as a credible, you know, I, I say that in parentheses, investigative journalist are investigating this issue. And I guess... Finally, it sort of came to a head for me, Dave, when in June last year, albeit a bit of a whitewash, the, um, the Pentagon task force made its report on UAPs begrudgingly and frankly admitted the reality of the phenomenon. And at that point, in my view, as a mainstream journalist, everything changed. Everything changed. Right. Well, at least it should have changed. You know, the stigma should have gone. The taboo should have gone. Every major newspaper in the United States and Australia should have immediately dedicated a rounds person to cover the issue of UAPs, the phenomenon, just like they cover, say, education or health. This was one of the most profound announcements by any government anywhere in the world ever. ever. The indications are obvious from former directors of the CIA, former presidents, heads of the intelligence community, even um, the, you know, the uh, uh, director of national intelligence in the recent Washington Cathedral, openly canvassed the possibility of extraterrestrial alien, there's that big A word, right. life. And, and the thing that I find bemusing is it's not us, mate. Right. It's not us that are disconnected. It's the mainstream media. Because what this represents, in my view, and give me this opportunity to rant. One Please. of the reasons I've withdrawn full time from mainstream media 
is because everybody is still operating in the world on the assumption that mainstream media organizations are as resourced and as talented and as well-informed as they used to be 30, 40 years ago when I first started out in journalism. Let me tell you, they are not. And what I find very, very interesting is the new millennial generation is hungry, rapacious for knowledge. And I admire them. I admire you guys. I admire citizen journalism because frankly, you can do a job better than mainstream media because mainstream media is completely failing to cover this story properly with a few laudable and notable exceptions. And I've named some of them at the beginning of my conversation. People like Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal from the New York Times, Helene Cooper, uh, people like Tom Rogan on the Washington Examiner, organizations like The Debrief, The Drive. But really, with a few exceptions in mainstream media, the bulk of the coverage is being done now by people in UFO Twitter. And that's where you guys are assuming an awesome responsibility. Because I know you're not trained in journalism, and I mean no patronization when I say this, but you all have to acquire the skill set of investigative journalism. Because we're now at a very, I think, dangerous period in investigating the phenomenon. We're at a period where very slowly, good people, good men and women are coming out of the woodwork. Just this morning, for example, there's a, a guy called Adrian Reister who's spoken to um, the, uh, oh God, now I'm embarrassed, I've forgotten its name, but the um, there's a website, uh, magazine, webzine, I will get to it straight away. No uh, basically, no uh, but basically, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, here we are. Just give me five seconds. I just want to acknowledge these people. The Liberation Times, it's a strange name. I thought it was a left-wing newspaper when I first saw it. But the Liberation Times has done a report with a guy called Adrian Reister, who was a uh, nuclear bomb missile technician at Whiteman Air Force Base in 2003 to 2007. And he says Sorry, he's willing to go sir, on the record. My apologies, sir. Just want to confirm this article here. That's the one. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. And uh, the the original article was Liberation Times with the Sun newspaper, and I see they've acknowledged that, which is great. Now, this is really interesting. This is a guy saying that he saw and chased what he describes as a shadow person mm. that entered one of the most secret facilities in the United States, a place where indisputably nuclear weapons are stored. He didn't even report it. And that's no reflection on Adrian. It's a reflection on the stigma that the US military, the defense community, the intelligence community are up against. He didn't feel he would be taken seriously. And he felt, as you've highlighted there, that you would be considered mentally unstable and have your clearance revoked right. if you spoke about this. Now, this is the thing that fascinates me. This is why you guys are trusted with people like Adrian. God bless him for coming out and speaking publicly. I have thousands of people like Adrian who want to talk about the phenomenon but are terrified of engaging publicly. 
I have never in journalistic career had a response such as what I'm getting at the moment and have had since my documentary and book first went out there. It is phenomenal. And I've, I can see there is a recognised public demand. They are screaming for serious mainstream coverage of this issue. And we're failing them in mainstream media. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the work that I did with Channel 7 Australia that's gone around the world. And I, I have to admit, it wasn't too hard to persuade Channel 7 Australia, my network that I do occasional reports for as an investigative journalist, to do the story because... This is the other thing that's insane about this. UFOs rate their socks off. People love it. It's 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 crack cocaine for TV. Right. And and my my uh, executive producers in the TV show I work for are saying, "Hey Roscoe, if you've got another story like that, bring it on, mate. Bring right. it on." <laughs> and and uh, and it's interesting because we've had on the UFO phenomenon, which anybody can find on YouTube on. Um, seven spotlight ufo that combination of searches will give it for you my name the ufo phenomenon and there's a later version called uh, the secrets of the ufos which involved follow-ups late in december we've now had if you add up all the iterations of that show that have been to air over 11 and a half million views and wow i've never i mean I, i'm flattered that People watch my TV shows in Australia, and we're lucky, frankly, if we get a million views on a good show. Whoa! This is this is this, this is blow your socks off stuff. Unprecedented. And what I what I what I recognise here is people really want this, and so this is where you guys are important. And more importantly, because the mainstream media is failing here, you can make a buck out of it. And good luck to you. You know, people. There's an opportunity here. There is an opportunity here for good quality, well-resourced investigative journalism. And this brings me to the final finality of the very long-winded answer that I'm giving you to your original question. Thank you. I appreciate this so much, actually. Uh, but, but, but essentially, YouTube, Twitter, social media that cover the phenomenon all need to become far more rigorous and far less credulous. In, in doing what they do. It's not enough just to put up a video saying, oh yeah, I filmed this outside my house on Friday night. It looks really interesting. Um, you know, that's just lazy. You know, I'm, I'm not resourced. I mean, I, I've got maybe 50,000 of those kind of videos sitting in my inbox. And, right. and I'm, not being dis, I'm not being disdainful of people who send me these things. What I'm saying is I can't do anything with it. But for example, if somebody logs a sighting, if you see a black triangle UFO with red lights in each corner hovering over your house, don't just take a fucking photograph of it. Seriously, <laughs> sit there, make notes, figure out what direction it was in, calculate the altitude, go and get a decent camera. Mm. You know, it, there's so many high quality cameras these days. There are Android phones with, um, with uh, night vision, you know, really good stuff. Uh, so many people have got good quality home movie cameras. The, the Sony A-series cameras, which uh, my colleagues have all got, they're beautiful low-light cameras. 
please, God, somebody out there, next time you see a UFO, have a good lens, so have a good camera. Sorry, sir, if I may ask, just to add to this here, if it, I was going to ask, regardless what you would suggest to, UF, to the UFO Twitter, UFO community, would these be those type of elements or those types of, I guess you could say, standards to set, so to speak, like looking for yeah. what direction was the craft pointed in? What was the general altitude? Yep. Okay. Yeah, really simple stuff like uh, um, the size of the object, the proximity to a military base, mm. um, the duration of the sighting. I mean, MUFON and uh, uh, Newfork, uh, you know, all of the different UFO groups, they've, they've got really good forms that you can fill out that are a good guide for anybody. But th there needs to be a standardized discipline across the board by people who are engaging with this subject matter. Um, and I think ultimately what's going to make this happen is good old fashioned journalistic competition. Right. Because shows like yours, Dave and Real, you know, you guys are basically going to be at the vanguard of, I think, and I'm not just saying this idly, I really do think this, the biggest story ever that's that's humbling and i'm very appreciative i know that you don't I mean, speak just to me but to others but wow yeah we we are on the cusp internationally of massive revelations and if you think about it what do we already know we already know that presidents are hinting president obama hinted very strongly in a recent interview that we needed to engage with this phenomena because it's doing things that are well beyond known human terrestrial science. Even Donald Trump, when he was interviewed by Don Trump Jr. prior to the election campaign, admitted that he'd been briefed on something about Roswell, the apocryphal mythical story of a, an alleged crashed alien craft in 1947. What was he told? And more importantly, what if instead of Don Trump being the inter interrogator, what if there was a press conference of the White House press corps and somebody in that feeble group of wimp, wimp journalists had put up their hand and said, Mr. President, Mr. President, you told Don Trump Jr. that you knew something about Roswell. You've indicated very, very strongly that there's an interesting story there to tell. Here's your opportunity, sir. What do you know about the phenomenon? Now, if Trump was evasive, it's then incumbent on the national security correspondents for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the LA Times, CBS, NBC, ABC, the premier supposedly dominant mainstream news media in the United States to get off their fat asses and start asking questions. Well, uh, seriously, if I may ask, did you see the clip uh, that was asked of uh, John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesperson, uh, many months right when they said I, a journalist had said, you know, John, we're told off the record that the Pentagon has bodies and all that. And if so, does the DOD have this? And if so, where? And Mr. Kirby, not to make fun of him, but, you know, he, he stuttered. He started going, ah, ah the, you know, well, let's not get ahead of the report today, guys, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that that was an evasion. Right. Obvious, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've 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 done press conferences a hundred thousand times. You know, <laughs> that was an evasion. 
Right. Well, now a good, yeah. a, I mean, what the hell's going on? Because more often than not, the Pentagon press pack, and I, I've sat in Pentagon press briefings. I know how it works. There are favored correspondents who get told, sure, you should ask this question, mate. You know, yeah, you know, uh, you know, ask us this question and we'll give you a good run. Right. That's how it works. And this is the problem is that a lot of national security and defense correspondents, I know, because I've been one are in the pocket of the people who they're talking to. Yes. They're, they're basically dependent on those sources for information. And so if the Pentagon spokesman doesn't want to be asked about UAPs and he makes it painfully clear that it's a bit uncomfortable for him to be asked about UAPs, you're crossing the line a little bit by raising the subject matter. The other technique they use is using the stigma, deploying the stigma. Yeah. They, they laugh or worse still, other journalists who should know better start tittering, giggling like little schoolchildren. Mm. This is this is pathetic with a capital P. And I say this, uh, I'm a reasonably well-respected international investigative journalist. I'm a member of the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. I've worked on collaborative international investigations with the New York Times, the Washington Post, the BBC, the LA Times, all of the world's great newspapers. I know how they vet information, but I also know how stories get snowed. If I, and I also know yeah. a bloody good story when I see one. And if I sound like I'm impatient and frustrated, I am, mm. because the mainstream media is fast proving its irrelevance in this subject matter. Right. Okay. So I, I did want to ask, thank you so much for honestly, the, that whole rant, because I have <laughs> honestly, that segues into so many great uh, and, questions. And look, I apologize in advance because maybe not every member of the Pentagon press corps has a fat ass, but there probably <laughs> are a few. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so for example, when you talk about the mainstream media deliberately obfuscating and all this, there was a press conference when uh, Dmitry Medvedev back in 2012 took over from Putin for four years, I believe it was. And uh, a lot of Russian outlets were there, but of course, American ones too. And one, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, a Russian outlet, a reporter journalist had asked uh, Medvedev about the uh, nuclear secrets and all that. And he had brought up that essentially, please forgive me if I don't have the, the chronology correct, but he had said, in addition, when you become president of Russia to being given the nuclear secrets, you're also given a booklet that gives you a briefing on all of the secret alien bases and where they are. And he then, Mr. Medvedev went on to then say, but if you want to learn more, check out the documentary, I believe, uh, Men in Black. Reuters, the American uh, outlet, then said, they said that he was joking. Although when you look at the original translation, he was not. And there, I bring this up, sir, because I ask with the utmost respect, is this something that you've seen, uh, not maybe from yourself, but from other colleagues deliberately doing this? Because as you said, they rely on these sources for info and info ultimately pays their bills. So... Well, look, I, I found the comments by, I think it was the Deputy Prime Minister of uh, Russia's parliament, uh, very, very interesting, quite revealing. And uh, like you, I, I was intrigued enough by it to actually approach Dmitry Peskov, who's Vladimir Putin's press advisor. I dealt with him previously on another story. Whoa. And uh, um, I've never really got a satisfactory answer. I mean, the Russians, I believe, are as intrigued by the phenomenon. Right as we all are. Can I ask, sorry, Ross, and, can I ask what you were told? <laughs> if, if I, uh, um, respectfully, if I may. Okay. Uh, 
out on the level, um, I arranged with Dimitri that I would meet him at the next APEC meeting with Vladimir Putin in Vietnam, which was, I think, four years ago. And we were going to have a, a meeting then. And then I left Australia's 60 Minutes and I didn't have the resources on my own back to travel to Vietnam. Right. But there was no guarantee that Dimitri would either have met me or have condescended to give me any information. What I can tell you is that good people like uh, Timofey Igorov, who's one of the cosmonaut trainers at the Star City Cosmonaut Training uh, Facility in Russia, he, he's put me on to various uh, retired, very senior military officials in the Soviet Union history, and also in the Russian military, who have candidly told me uh, about their own take on the reality of UFOs. And I think it's a really untold story that the former leaders of the Soviet Union, especially at the end of the Cold War, made very frank admissions to their Western allies that this phenomenon had been bemusing them for many, many years. And in fact, full credit to the Russians, they, they did during the Soviet Union era one of the biggest investigations into the phenomenon for 10 years. They investigated over a thousand incidents and they reached, I'm told, pretty much the same conclusion that our military bosses did, which is it's real, mm. it's unexplained. And yes, I mean, I've spoken to former Soviet military officials who've asked to remain anonymous, who've told me that they are aware of retrieved non-human technology in the possession of the Russian government. And I've also corroborated that with sources in the intelligence community in North America who've told me similar things. I'm in no doubt whatsoever as a result of those conversations that the United States government, the Russian government, and possibly other governments are in possession of technology that may not be of this earth. So uh, you had said, I believe, 20, 25 minutes ago, if, uh, please forgive me if uh, I misquoted you here, but uh, thousands of officials uh, within the, the army, I'm not sure of which country, but have uh, told you they would like to come forward, but they are afraid of the stigma? Not, not, not necessarily officials. Okay. That, implies, that implies seniority. Some of these people are, for example, nuclear weapons technicians, they're people who were policemen, security policemen at missile bases. May I ask across which countries, which nations? Well, interestingly, not just North America, not just the USA. There are people who are aware of incidents that have taken place at radar facilities in your country, in Canada, in some of the NORAD facilities based in Canada. Uh, I've spoken to a guy at uh, Fairbanks in Alaska. I've spoken to people in France, Britain, Russia, China, India, Australia, New Zealand. Holy I mean, it's crap. it's worldwide. I mean, and these are people who are basically saying that they have seen anomalous phenomena, or even in some cases, what Adrian Reister has kindly referred to in this morning's story in the Liberation Times some newspaper story, shadow people. Now, shadow people, interestingly enough, I know immediately the debunkers roll their eyes and they go, oh, this is crazy shit. You know, this is UFO right. tinfoil hat nonsense. But 
We're in an era now where people like Sir John Pendry, the developer of the notion of metamaterials, are talking about workable invisibility cloaks. Right. Where we're talking about technology that might allow individuals or craft to be made fully invisible. So why is it not a major national security issue that as we speak, a major story has gone out in a tabloid newspaper in the UK and in uh, an excellent webzine, the Liberation Times that I commend to everybody that isn't being broken in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, all of the world's premier newspapers. This is big. Right. This is a guy on the record saying that he's seen shadow people, presumably somebody who's partially invisible, uh, in one of the most secure facilities in the United States. Now, look, I mean, I just devil's advocate for a moment, sir. Why is that not a major story? I mean, you tell me. Yes. I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. I, I don't understand why there is this cognitive dissonance. Like this, Lockheed Martin's website. How You're right. I agree. How How is this not something that's at least being discussed at the very least? I mean, how do we know? And look, I know this is an issue of concern inside the Pentagon. Right. I know. I know because I've, I've spoken to senior officials who confirm to me they've, they've seen these sightings reports. They're aware of these sighting reports. George Knapp, my superb, well-ahead colleague, George Knapp, who presents on his superb website and also on Coast to Coast, his findings, he's reported on shadow people before, you know, these invisible entities that seem to be able to enter the most secure facilities in the United States. By definition, I mean, I've spoken to people who work in the Department of Energy who've briefed me on the levels of security that are used to protect America's most important secrets, the Q clearances and higher that are used to protect the secrets of nuclear weapons. And shall I drop a hint here? All the other things that the DOE is sitting on that it's been keeping secret for many, many decades. You know, these are I, secrets. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just going to ask, can you bring up any of them? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, been... it's a, it's a, I, I, I am told that if you are looking for any retrieved non-human material that was ever retrieved by the United States, I am told that where it resided before it was shoved off and hidden in private aerospace, probably in breach of laws of the Congress, probably in contempt of Congress. This material was in the possession of the Department of Energy. I, oh my gosh, I, I am with the utmost, I am nowhere near your level of credibility and all that, but I have, this is what I've been told as well by some individuals that it's in, I mean, we, I mean, for the sake of a public reference, we look at Christopher Mellon on Joe Rogan, when um, Joe Rogan asked Mr. Mellon, where would you go if you were president, where would you go to be briefed on this? And Mr. Mellon says, he goes, ah, he goes, I'd, I'd call the DOE first. I think he said that would be one of the first places he'd call. He goes, they have a totally different classification system. Hey, look, the other, the other area I would go, and I tweeted about this a few weeks ago, the national, um, the NOAA, uh, Oceanic and, oh God. National Oceanic, yeah, it's the, the same, sorry, the same administration that uh, 
film uh, caught on uh, data that blip in the 90s that was twice the gotcha. size right yeah and, and mate i have had like busload sized hints from people in the intelligence community that's where we should start looking and that the best place to find and detect and track the phenomenon is in the water okay now and, would that, the, you, yeah. and that the best data on that is in the water I'd love to give, and I, I and I don't think there's any coincidence. There's no coincidence that the former director of the NOAA, and I was gobsmacked that he did this. He tweet, uh, he, he he spoke recently in an interview, and I tweeted what he said. He actually raised the possibility in an interview that he did that that what we're talking about here is extraterrestrial life. And again, you know, I just waited for somebody in the mainstream media to pick this up, thinking, you know, surely, surely somebody's going to pick up the fact that the former director of the NOAA has just written an article with Avi Lobb asserting right. that, you know, a possible explanation for this is extraterrestrial. And um, it was in the hill.com. Uh, yep. And the article was December 19th, will we soon rewrite textbooks on our place in the universe? And it was Rear Admiral retired Tim Gallaudet, Gallaudet. I apologize to Tim if I pronounced his name wrong. But basically he, he said, we are in the midst of a discovery of even greater magnitude than those in space. And incredibly, it is what many regard as the modern icon of quack science unidentified objects traditionally labeled ufos and then this line that may represent technological equipment manufactured by an advanced extraterrestrial civilization whoa yeah that's <laughs> right right and actually i did want to say very quickly uh, i want more in more of a question and to his credit riel brought this up to me i think a month month and a half ago uh thank you brother it riel had said to me while we were doing some research he goes dave he goes has anyone filed a freedom of information act request with the national geospatial intelligence agency that might be another one too in addition to noaa uh and yeah i don't i don't know of anything now the unfortunate thing is as i'm sure you know better than most they play sleight of hand with the labeling of these things right so you don't know what they you're do. looking for right That's well i mean I'll, I'll give you a good example i mean there's a lovely bloke he's the head of our air force here in australia and he's a good guy mill hupfield and um i've met him and and he's a former fighter pilot straight up guy he's just the sort of guy you'd want dropping bombs on people he's very careful <laughs> very considered you know right right good good bloke but he was asked in our parliament which is like our congress a few months ago you know did you have any evidence were you still investigating uaps mm. and i don't know whether mel was told the whole story by his advisors but he told parliament the senate estimates committee which is like a, a senate oversight committee that he wasn't aware of any ongoing monitoring of UAPs and, and more importantly, you know, he wasn't aware of any kind of extraterrestrial presence or anything like that. He basically played down the whole story. At the same time, I'm talking to people in his own department who are telling, who are telling me not about UAPs, but quote, UAMs, unauthorized aircraft movements. And 
my source told me, why the hell didn't they ask him about UAMs? Because that's the acronym they use in our Defence Department. And more importantly, I'm told that Mel's routinely orally briefed about anomalous objects that are detected on the gingerly over the horizon radar system, which is very important for North America because it goes right back. All the data from our JORN radar system, which is a high-tech ionospheric monitoring radar system, all that data goes back to the Space Command in the United States, as does data from our Pine Gap, which is a joint military facility between Australia and the US, slap bang in the middle of Australia near Uluru, Ayers Rock, uh, near Alice Springs. And as does a lot of data from a facility known as the Space Telescope, which is a, ostensibly a space debris monitoring facility on Northwest Cape way, way out in the far western desert of northern Australia. And uh, it overlooks the Indian Ocean and looks up onto a beautiful, clear evening sky and monitors not only space debris, but space objects. And I am told that routinely reports are coming in to our Defence Department, forwarded on to the United States, NSA, CIA, DIA, that report anomalous objects maneuvering in front of not only the old DSP defense support program satellites, but also the newer geospatial satellites. You hear that word real? Geospatial satellites. And this is why you should be doing, we should be doing FOIs, but don't hold your breath guys. Right. This is um, also, yeah. I'm told that I'm told the data is going to be kept confidential because to do, to do anything to reveal it, or re release it would would disclose means and methods. It would reveal the extent to which the United States, in particular, is capable of monitoring objects. This this reminds me. Thank you for that. This reminds me of two instances where uh, Jacques Vallée had mentioned that, for example, when Carl Sagan went to NORAD, he asked what they had on UFOs, and they said nothing. And then Mr. Sagan goes, "What do you mean? They're like." People see them all the time. And this is years ago, not compared to now, you know, and, and uh, the, the gentleman there said, we don't call them that we call them UCTs, unidentified, <laughs> right, uncor uncorrelated, I think it was unidentified correlating targets. I believe uncorrelated, that, uncorrelated targets, uncorrelated yeah. targets. Right. And then Mr. Yeah. Sagan goes, well, how many of those do you get every week or month? And it was in the thousands and they were just said it like it was nothing. Yeah, well, look, the, the really interesting thing is that one of the guys I spoke to, I've spoken to old timers, they're really lovely people to talk to. And he told me about the old fashioned radars they had in the 1950s and 60s, way out at Fairbanks in Alaska. And he told me how even on his old radar scope, the object that he saw was miles across, a mm. solid object miles across that he registered on radar and he asked the guy that he was with in the room at the time what do we do do we report this okay right so this and, is like and they yeah. and they didn't but what's interesting and and th this is the holy grail here this is why it's all getting interesting there are different types of radar now coming out and this is where we should all be drilling the nimitz carrier battle group in 2004 the USS Princeton, which is one of the most, at the time, impressive, up-to-date, technologically advanced guided missile destroyers in the US battle fleet, 
it had just been fitted with an upgrade to its phased array spy one radar system. And every source is telling me that it is this phased array radar system. I think it's SSPAR's radar system, which is now making detection of these objects undeniable. Because what's interesting, fighter jets at the time didn't have these phased array systems in their actual cockpit systems. But later, when the USS Theodore Roosevelt was doing exercises in 2014, 2015, in their windup for the Middle East, 10 years after the USS Nimitz incident, by that time, the newer versions of the FAA-18 strike fighter that they were using off the Theodore Roosevelt did have new phased array radar systems, which is why the guys and girls in the jets on the East Coast off Virginia started seeing and are still seeing, as recently as a few weeks ago, I'm told, anomalous objects, weird stuff, not just triangulars and tic-tacs and sort of spheres within cubes, right. really weird orbs, glowing objects. These, are, these sightings continue. And the reason they're detecting them is because these radar systems are now indisputably advanced. And this is the technology that the, the US is still protecting, but I'm told from people who know, it's phenomenally good because it not only allows you to, to, to detect that a solid object is, is there in the sky, say 60 miles away, it can often tell you an estimation of the mass of that object, an estimation of the shape of that object. And using some of the imaging systems that they have on these modern jets, as one guy said to me, you can almost see the rivets if there were any. Have you by chance heard of someone by the name of Frederick Porti? Allegedly he was... Frederick Portigal, F-R-E-D-R-I-C-P-O-R-T-I-G-A-L. Yes, I have. I've spoken to Frederick. Yeah. Oh, Fred, okay, perfect. If I'm not mistaken, just to clarify, this is the same individual that the Air Force dumped, I think, almost a million dollars, 750,000 American dollars in for a particular uh, radar detector that he had um, cure, uh, come up with, if I'm not mistaken, that the DIA had referred to as alien hunting binoculars, but this was oh, all yeah, yeah. off the record on some, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so those would be, again, there's a lot of speculation as in, are those, is that quantum radar? Um, is there anything that you can give us that your sources are telling you that's off the record? And if not, uh, to follow up with that, do you see any of your off the record sources coming forward anytime soon? Um, and I say no, uh, and that's still a subject of active investigation. Got you. Okay. Thank you. Um, also just wanted to mention for the audience, for those watching or listening, uh, when Mr. Coltart brought up phase array, uh, Riel actually brought this up to me. Uh, please think of, for those that know Dan Winter's work, uh, with phase conjugation and inhabiting, uh, plasma arrays and all of that. But um, I did want to ask you, sir, I wanted to share my screen with you um, over here. And I wanted to ask, because this is, I feel the closest that the, uh, I may, unless I'm missing something, I, I feel as though you are the closest that the UFO and paranormal community has gotten to uh, an actual, you know, mainstream media, respected journalist, really going down the rabbit hole. So this is a teleportation physics study. I'm sure you've come across it, uh, authored by uh, Dr. Davis, uh, 2004. Now, 
again, it speaks on, you know, teleportation, all of this. However, I want to point out that the primary distribution of this report was sent to, now this may be a bit of an out there question, but I, I feel uh, I can't waste this opportunity. Uh, some of this was sent to, again, lots of people at the DOE, DARPA, you name it. But we see here, if we zoom in, was sent to Dr. Frank Mead at Edwards Air Force Base at 10 East Saturn Boulevard. And then in addition to that, we have again, Dr. Jean-Luc Cambier uh, sent to Edwards Air Force Base. And then we have Dr. Alan Garskiden at Wright-Patterson, again, the same speculative rumors uh, for, that have circulated the community for years, Building 18. For, uh, for those that can't put, uh, may not put it together, that refers to Hangar 18 allegedly at Wright-Patterson. Uh, and then finally, we have here AFRL slash PR Technical Library sent to Edwards Air Force Base at 6 Draco Drive. Now, this is when it's going to get a little bit out there, or maybe not uh, for those watching or listening. And I think Ross might know where I'm going with this. But when you have an instance where allegedly, and I say this very carefully and, and speculatively, where these some of these shape-shifting entities are referred to as Dracos, Alpha Draconians, you have, for example, uh, David Icke, you know, uh, pushing the Saturn moon matrix, and I'm not trying to uh, compliment nor insult any of this trying to take this totally down the middle. And we see here Saturn Boulevard, and we see Draco Drive, Hangar 18. What do you, sir, make of this? I know they're just words. I know you can't obviously make a connection in that regard. But putting together what you've been told off the record, and formulating your own opinion. Do you gather anything from this or am I just crazy? And I really do mean that. I don't think you're crazy. I mean, I, I like you, I've, uh, when I saw that report I, and other reports that were released as part of the ORSAP uh, program uh, uh, that was declassified, um, I, I was fascinated to see who was on the distribution list. Right. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but journalistically, I mean, no disrespect to you. Right. It's no evidence. Right. You know, you, right. you can join the dots there and you can make assumptions. Uh, I mean, another thing that intrigues me, and it's great copy, are those lurid mission patches that you have for all of the different agencies. And I kind of, I've, I went and listened to David Ick once and uh, Ike or whatever you say his name. He's the guy who's obsessed with crocodiles or reptiles running the world. Right. And, and, and look, you know, I, I, I'm not even going to go there because I just don't know. I've right. never seen any evidence of it. I've spoken to people who've claimed to have knowledge of it. Um, I, I, I just don't know. Does it? But, but the, the, the thing that fascinates me is a lot of those mission patches do have reptiles. Have you noticed? Yes. <laughs> yep. Specifically would... from uh, John Ramirez. If you've listened to any of his talks, <coughs> he's been yeah. making the rounds lately. And he's the one that pointed out the NRO patches that have just these amazing reptilian visualizations or giant octopuses. Yeah. Uh, but look, you know, it might just be that there's some guy in the art department at the NRO or the NSA who just likes these images and thinks it's cool. Right. But uh, uh, journalistically, yes. whilst I find it intriguing, right. Nothing. I'm, not, I'm not going to reach any conclusion on it. You, you can't. And, and this, is, this is where I think you, we, me, we all have to exercise discipline, right? You know, we have we have to show the same kind of rigor that that ostensibly mainstream media shows, and and be careful about what we conclude on data. Um, you know, uh, even say John Ramirez or Frederick Portugal, 
in and of themselves, their assertions need to be corroborated. Right. You yes. know, it's 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 useful data, what they're saying. And I've spent a lot of time talking to Frederick, and I'm still in the process of attempting to check out some of his assertions. But these are incredibly difficult claims to check out. Yes. And substantiate. But, you know, I mean, full credit to him and to John Ramirez, Ramirez for being prepared to speak publicly. Um, what it's also incumbent on all of us to do is to make sure that when we question these people, one of the key questions we should ask them is, are you saying what you're saying based on information that you acquired as a result of your work? Or are you saying this based on information that's come to light subsequently? And a good example of this is the quite dramatic allegations that were made by a former head of the Israeli space program, uh, who came out very dramatically and started making all sorts of wild assertions about aliens running the planet and cover-ups and conspiracies and his knowledge of a secret space program. And I don't know the truth of the matter. I'm not making a final judgment on whether or not what he said was true or not. But it, it worries me that he was never rigorously questioned about the provenance of the information that he was asserting he knew. And that's what we've got to do. When, right. when, when somebody tells us something, what I'm saying is we need to drill down into why they're saying what they're saying what evidence have they got to justify it and and really it's not just good journalism it's common sense it's it's establishing the bona fides of that person it's not enough to say and i mean i mean no discredit to john ramirez who i'm assured by his colleagues gave honorable service to the cia but it's it's not enough to say john ramirez served in the cia for x number of years therefore everything he's saying must be true right yeah what we need to do is say, when John says something, we need to say to him, okay, John, just for a moment there, because he's been quite clear in more recent times, he's been quite clear that some of the things that he has acquired, he's made an opinion drawn on public sources, public information. Right. And he's quite, he's quite good like that, which is one of the things that made me very sure he, he indeed was an intelligence analyst, because that's the way intelligence analysts think. They talk right. about open source and, and confidential sources or compartmentalized sources. But he's been quite clear now more recently to distinguish between what he knows as a result of stuff that he acquired in his work and stuff that he acquired elsewhere. So public sources, right? So if I may go a, a layer deeper, if and if you would allow me to sort of take a, a sort of uh, front driver's uh, driver's seat perspective of of your uh, processes on on a private level of what you do with your sources and whatnot, I'm not trying to harp on uh, the uh, the Davis document pertaining to the the addresses there, but since we're already we were on the topic for the sake of the example. If you, uh, again, with your credibility, your reputation, your uh, resources, connections, if you were to go to someone, an official off the record and say, you know, listen, ma'am, sir, I know that obviously you cannot comment publicly or officially, but do any of these addresses, addresses, excuse me, corroborate? And I'm not saying the addresses specifically, I'm saying any piece of document that seems so in your face, but you can't make a direct connection to. 
if you were to say, for example, let's just say, Mr. Coltheart, you went off the record to Mr. Elizondo and said, could you give me something about these addresses? Is this is there more than just these streets being named this? Would they, in, in, again, in a hypothetical scenario, I'm trying to get to a lower layer here without asking for, obviously, your sources and what they've told you. Well, firstly, I would never do that to Lou. Okay, uh, sure. Because right. uh, uh, basically, there's just no point in asking somebody like Lou Elizondo or Chris Mellon or any of these people who've been schooled inside the US intelligence community to breach their security oaths. They're not going to do that. They're patriots. The reason they're doing this is because they're patriots. They care for their country. They think that, that things should be disclosed that haven't been disclosed. Um, but I, I do have conversations with people where I'm I'm trying to find in open source corroboration. And I don't want to go into detail here, but I'm sure. having some very fruitful inquiries. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I, the, the problem I have at the moment is every podcast I go on, everybody wants me to sort of tell them this, that what's the latest stuff, Ross? Uh. And, and I can't, I don't want to talk about it because, you know, it took me four, three, four years to to write my book. But the, um, the only way I could do that was by getting sources to trust me. And, you know, the technique that I used is, I guess, quite interesting because I've done stories as a journalist in television about the, um, the ease with which mobile phone telephony and email systems via mobile phones can be hacked. And it really opened an eye up to me. If you go on YouTube and put in bugged, tracked, hacked Ross Coulthart 60 Minutes, you'll find a story I did about a system called SS20, uh, SS, oh God, no, I've forgotten it, SS7, and Signaling System 7. And essentially, it's a backdoor system that was installed into the very early GSM mobile phone telephony that still exists to this day, that is the great secret that nobody ever wants to talk about, right. but which is sitting there in plain sight, which allows every mobile phone on the planet to be hacked, period. And I've seen it done. We, we In the story that I did, we got a bunch of um, German hackers who were working with a company that was doing a report for the German government. And they had access to this uh, backdoor system that is essentially the repair channel, if you like, for mobile phone telephony. And... Um, they were amazed because I was in London talking to a politician who was cooperating with me for the story in Australia. And all I did was give them my mobile phone number. And I said, okay, prove it, hack me. And they did it. And they did it. So ever since then, I've been paranoid about communications because it really woke me up to the fact that there are private entities, corporations selling this as a service NSO in Israel that's been notorious for the Trojan that, mm. that was tracking Jamal Khashoggi, the poor Gallup, poor guy that was cut up to bits by those thugs, the Saudis in Turkey. Um, you know, that's a good example. So it woke me up to the fact that if I communicated with people in the national security establishment in the US or anywhere overseas or here, I was leaving an electronic metadata trail, which is all now logged and kept for a minimum of two years here in Australia. And so, you know, essentially we have electronic surveillance of a scale now in both of our countries, which is beyond 
any imagining. It's incredible. And it makes good, rigorous, investigative journalism very, very difficult these days because you have to, in the back of your mind, always be worried about protecting sources. So when I first started out writing my book, I collated a list of literally hundreds of people who I was really interested in talking to, to sound them out, to see if they'd be interested in talking to me. Mm. But I knew if I rang them and then they then spoke to me on the phone or, or even if they just agreed to send me a letter, I'd betrayed their confidence. I'd broken them as a source. Right. That's an, it's an egregious breach of journalistic ethics. Right. I mean, it's appalling. And every journalist should be aware of that. So I wrote letters. I wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of letters, good old fashioned letters. Yeah. And in one or two cases. With, sorry, with, just to clarify, with a pen and paper? Well, I typed them and then oh, printed okay. them out and, oh, okay, and okay. signed them. Gotcha. And, um, and in some cases, because I was traveling for 60 minutes, I, I literally dropped them off under the door at people's homes, oh especially in Washington. DC. And, uh, and it worked. And it worked because these people recognized that I'd anticipated the very thing they were most fearful of, which is detection. And one of them allowed me to speak publicly about his real name, Nat. Kobitz, the former director of science and technology for the US Navy, one of the most senior executive positions in research and development, in fact, the most senior position in R&D for the US Navy. A great man, a huge patriot, a good American, who candidly admitted to me that he was read into, he was given access to the compartmentalized intelligence inside his top secret clearance that allowed him to know, period, that the United States government was in possession of multiple retrieved craft. Wow. Now, Matt was dying at the time, which is probably why he told me what he told me. Mm. As he said to me, well, what are they going to do to me? Mm. He, was a, he was a good man. And he didn't give me a lot of detail about what he knew, but he clearly knew a lot more. But through him, I was introduced to a number of other people. Right. And that opened the door for me. And it made me realize that there are good people out there in national security establishment and in private aerospace in America who think it's time this story was told. They're worried that if I can tell you candidly what I think, I think a lot of this is a clumsy accident, a relic of the Cold War, mm. that there was information and physical material that was recovered during the course of the last 70, 80 years and earlier, which has been in the possession of the US government through the DOE since World War II. It was oh, a cold sorry, war. Sorry, sorry, it was a cold war, and we found a life form. To quote, uh... funny you should say that. <laughs> Wonder who that was. The right. general. The general, right? Yeah. Um, and I think what happened was it was shoved off into private aerospace, right. largely in panic when the DOE became a formal government department subject to accountability and oversight by the Inspector General and um, FOI laws. And I think various people inside the National Security Administration, the vast majority of them have been truthfully saying for some years now that they know nothing about it. 
I believe that absolutely. It, and yeah. I, I think they're, they're good people. I, I think they're genuine when they say to me, as they have done, Ross, there is something here, but we don't know what it is. I promise you, we're not hiding this. And I, I've, I've heard this from very, very senior people in the US administration. Especially when, um, sorry, I just wanted to add to that. Please tell me if I'm incorrect, especially when the, uh, the, when they find something and they find they have answered their questions answered, but those answers lead to even more questions. What are you going to tell the public? How are you going to, you yeah. going to announce to the public? We don't know what we got. <laughs> well, I think they're wrestling with a dilemma. If I can express to you where I think we're at at the moment, and I had somebody ring me the other day and confirm this to me, who was inside the intelligence community. I think the US thinks that it's on the brink of war with China. Mm. I think that we live in one of the most unstable and dangerous periods since the end of the Cold War. And we are closer than at any time in our recent history, than in the last quarter century, to all out nuclear conflagration. And there is a genuine fear that revealing the existence of technologies, capabilities, insights might upset the balance. Um, and that for, yeah. for good national security reasons, there is a, a preponderance of view inside the US Air Force and the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, the CIA in particular, that it's time to start limiting information. And I think that's why we saw when the US government made its announcement, when the Pentagon made its announcement of the ridiculously named AOIMSG mm. investigation group, it was an attempt to head off the much broader intended UAP investigation group called nominally ASTRO um, that would have had even independent scientific oversight by non-military civilians who were security cleared. I think that was the Pentagon's worst nightmare. Yeah. And, and frankly, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Because I, I know there is a battle royale going on inside the intelligence and defense community in the US ahead of the reports that now formally are required by legislation to be right. disclosed to the Congress. But my sources tell me that there is no good reason for this not to be revealed. I, I did want to ask, in addition to this, I know you only have uh, 10 minutes, 11 minutes left with us, and I'd like to thank you so very kindly for going over our initially scheduled time. Um, do you, in your, uh, this is my final question, then I'd like to uh, give Riel the floor just for a couple of questions, if that's all right. Um, do you think, based on the sources and people that you've spoken to off the record, I don't want to put words in your mouth and I'm trying to be as respectful as I can here. Would you um, say that our species has been given a deadline, so to speak? And I only ask this because, and I, I, I'm only asking, sir, because when I look, for example, at fizz.org, I look at uh, futurism.com, all these mainstream media websites about pertaining to science, the drive, you know, all of the, uh, all of this. It seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, something is being rushed in a way that is, is excessive, excessively quick, 
and almost as if our human leaders are not in control. Uh, in your opinion, I don't mean to obviously again ask, hey Ross, you know, tell me what they said. Of course not. But in your opinion, can you comment on that? On our species being given a deadline in some regards? I agree with you that the um, I, I find the intensity of the willingness of serving and former very senior defense intelligence and government officials to speak candidly about their concern about the importance of addressing the phenomenon very telling um i have had conversations with people who talk about deadlines who, who talk about a coming conflagration who talk about predicted catastrophes um, I've spoken on other podcasts about people in the intelligence community who talk to me about a theory that what we're dealing with is future human, that, that we're possibly talking about future humanity trying to alter the time stream for a coming conflagration and one set of humanity fighting with another set of humanity about whether that should be allowed to happen. Okay, sorry. Can I clarify that, sir? No. I, 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 you've brought that up previously. Is this would this mean that all of these ET races are future humans and their factions, or some in addition to? Uh, you used the word ET, extraterrestrial. Uh, I didn't. Fair. Okay. Um, right. Sorry. Uh, I mean, I, I, let's use the correct labeling. ET implies not of this earth. My yes, I, correct, I, yeah. I, 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 I suspect the phenomenon that we're talking about here is a very old and very wise non-human intelligence that's been around forever. And, you know, without wanting to sound like a complete tinfoil hat loony, um, any more than that is speculative. I mean, I'm like you. I'm dipping my toe into this subject matter. But what I can tell you makes the back of the hairs on my neck go a little bit strange is when I start having conversations with well-known public officials privately and they start going all woo on me. <laughs> if right. you know what I mean. Yes. They start know, talking. Is, yeah. It, I mean, I had a conversation yesterday actually with one guy who told me, Ross, you cannot separate the paranormal, the high strangeness from the phenomenon. And we were talking about Jacques Vallée and his Forbidden Science Volume 4, I think it is, where he talks candidly about the fact that he doesn't think the extraterrestrial hypothesis cuts it to explain all of the phenomena we're talking about. I mean, we're in an era now where former highly respected scientists with the Defense Intelligence Agency, former senior intelligence officials who've worked with a DIA program on a ranch in Utah, Skinwalker Ranch, are openly talking about things that can only be described as paranormal phenomena. I mean, we're talking about reputable scientists claiming to have seen a solid life form in the shape of a a werewolf coming out of a three-dimensional hole in the sky. It doesn't get any weirder than that. 
That's... I mean, I really commend, I commend um, Colm Kelleher and um, George Knapp's latest book um, uh, to everybody. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal read. But the thing that blows me away about it is it's sourced to people in government, serving members of the DIA, people who've served with the DIA, people who've worked with some of our premier military and civilian intelligence agencies. Something's going on here. And extraterrestrial ET doesn't cut it as an explanation anymore. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say I know the answer. Like a lot of people assumed when I was talking about the future human hypothesis that I was convinced that that was it. All I'm doing is as a journalist reporting what I'm being told. And one of the things I'm wise to is the possibility of disinformation. Yes. You know, it, it could be that we're all being headed off on a big, a big lie. Right. Maybe that maybe the Tic Tac, the 2004 sighting of a cylindrical peppermint shaped object by the USS Nimitz crew. Maybe that's US technology. Maybe it's being developed in the black and a, a big lie has been told to the world by the US in Congress even to keep secret the fact that this new technology is under development. All right. If, if that's the case, I really, really hope it's the case because right, um, right. You know, it's so exciting because it would mean, I mean, let, let's explore though, just for a moment, Dave, sure. I, I, I lie in bed at night and think about the implications of this. The Pentagon's admissions to date, the formal admissions made to your sovereign government, your right. Congress, it's not the president who runs America, by the way. Remind yourself of that at times. Mm. I think Donald Trump and other presidents at time have lost sight of this. Mm. It's the Congress. Your Congress, by the people, for the people. I, I was a law student and I read the American Constitution. It's one of the most beautiful documents. You know, it's, it enshrines liberties and freedoms and rights to know. Accountability checks, controls. What we are talking about here is the potential that the US government is sitting on secrets that it has illegally, criminally, right, contempt of the Congress withheld from the American public. Sir, and you know uh, what? I, I think that's possible. I really do think that's possible, unless Harry Truman or Eisenhower signed an executive order back in the 1950s, which meant that it was allowed to be kept secret even from presidents. Right. Which, which would be a phenomenal abrogation of constitutional oversight. Well, I, I know, sir, we only have three minutes left with you. So I did want to ask two more questions. And if you could answer them in, I guess, a yes or no fashion uh, for the sake of time. Um, it's still along these lines. Uh, just to clarify earlier, uh, when you said that you have been told, and keep in mind for the audience listening or watching, again, this could be disinformation, could be, we don't know. But when you were told, um, so being told that in addition to some of these uh, beings being us from the future, have you been told this, that have you been told, for example, okay, uh, you know, Ross, we got a few different factions are us from the future, but then some other factions are just non-human entirely. They're from elsewhere. Have you, can you confirm or, or deny that? Oh, well, that's a very good, no, that's a really good question. I mean, my personal view is I, I'm exploring the possibility in my own mind that, that the future human hypothesis is just part of it. Because so many people I've talked to uh, good people 
are telling me things that suggest when we're talking about a, an intelligence and a technology that is superior to what we know about here on our planet, you know, the most plausible explanation that at least some or part of this is non-human. Right. Unless there is a civilization sharing this planet with us that we just don't know about. I okay. mean, there are one of the most unexplored parts of the world. And let me bring you back to the NOAA again. Sure. Funny how it's kind of circular all this, isn't it? Yeah. Let's end, let's, let's end with the NOAA. I think somewhere on their, on their uh, website, I found the comment that the oceans of the world are the most unexplored regions of this planet. And isn't it interesting that the phenomenon has manifested itself most overtly over oceans? Yes. Yep. That's where I'd be looking. Right. Got you. Well, could this be why they say it can't be, uh, For ex not to put words in Mr. Eric, uh, Eric Davis's mouth, but could this be why Dr. Eric Davis says legislators can't quantify this on a legislative basis? Like you said, for the example, with the wolf coming out of a portal, even if 1% of that is accurate, if the technology comes out, say, for us to be able to walk through walls, what are you going to do? Say no one after 7 p.m. at night can walk through walls? Let me let me tell you, I, I have such huge respect for Eric Davis. Right. Uh, I mean, he's got a brain the size of a planet. I've spoken to colleagues of his who speak so highly of him. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're very lucky to have scientists like him yes. yep. working as he does at Aerospace Corporation. But let me leave you with this thought. <clears throat> Whatever Eric Davis says, he has pushed the boundaries and been more courageous than almost any other scientist and commentator from inside the intelligence and defense community. He has suggested, not just suggested, he has asserted as a matter of fact that the United States government is attempting to back engineer retrieved alien spacecraft. He's talked openly about the fact that the United States is working on radical new propulsion technologies, the possibility of faster than light travel using um, areas of quantum physics that we're only now beginning to understand. Now, if he was lying, if he was recklessly putting information out there that was anathema to good science, don't you think that the people that he now works for, a federally funded research corporation known as the Aerospace Corporation based in Long Beach, California, I think he's based around Huntsville, Alabama, don't you think he wouldn't be working there anymore. Mm. The only, uh, the only uh, devil's advocate argument or rebuttal to that that I can think of off the top of my head is, oh, well, again, they're, they're all in on it, but that would then presume they're all in on a disinformation campaign. Yeah. So, yeah. Frankly, Dave, and real, I don't know. Right. But that's what makes this investigation such great fun. Well, sir, thank you so, so very much. In addition to the extended time that uh, that we had not scheduled, I truly uh, cannot be more appreciative of your your time, your knowledge. And please, if you can, tell our audience where and how they can find you um, and all of that, if you wish. Okay. My name is Ross Coulthard. I have a website, rosscoulthard.com, www.rosscoulthard for tango.com. 
my book, In Plain Sight, is available in North America. It's being reprinted at the moment because so many of you have bought it. Thank you very, very much, all of you. Um, but it should be back in the shops in a week or two. And it's www.inplainsight-book.com to get the best discounts. Uh, my documentary, The UFO Phenomenon, if you go to YouTube and type in Seven Spotlight UFO, you'll find all the iterations of my UAP UFO documentary, which has gone bananas on YouTube. And I'm very, very interested in hearing from anyone who wants to talk to me. My email is muckraker, M-U-C-K-R-A-K-E-R, at protonmail.com. Thank you so very much once again, and we will catch all of you very, very soon. Thank you so much, everybody.